Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the OSSTF announced that teachers and education workers will participate in a one-day province-wide strike action early next week. Shootings in Hamilton have hit an eight-year high, and Jody Wilson-Raybalt, remember her? Well, she's saying that partisanship needs to be put aside to tackle the divisions in our country. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We told you yesterday on CHML that the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation have announced that teachers and education workers are going to be participating in a one-day province-wide full strike early next week. And obviously that's going to have implications on anybody who's got uh, children that are going to school. And uh, obviously about education and about a number of other things. And the other element to this, too, of course, is uh, this is it's a bad omen because clearly negotiations are not going well. Harvey Bischoff from the uh, Secondary School Teachers Federation uh, told us earlier this week that he has never seen negotiations this bad in all the years that he's been doing this. And that's that's quite a statement from him. Alex Johnstone is the uh, chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. And uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about how the board is going to be handling this. Alex, thanks for the time. How are you this morning? Good morning, Bill. Probably a little apprehensive, I guess, because of the news and what's been going on here. Uh, you guys didn't create this mess, but you're still going to have to end the confrontation, but you're still obviously going to have to deal with the ramifications of it. What is the board doing, Alex, to uh, to prepare for what's going to be happening next week? Well, Bill, we received notice yesterday that our secondary student um, sorry, our secondary staff would be walking out if a deal was not reached by next Wednesday. And with that, that would uh, create a full withdrawal of services and our, student, our schools would then need to close for the day. Um, at the center of this dispute is the increase to class sizes. And that is where, as a board of trustees, we are encouraging parents to become informed about the issues, to know what is at stake, and to speak out. Um, trustees have strongly stood against class sizes. Uh, the implications are very clear. With less caring adults in our schools, there will be a reduction in course offerings and a reduction in the courses that are offered in all five of our pathways. So our college-level programs, our university-level programs, um, our apprenticeships, our community programs, and our workplace programs. And, and that's going to have a significant and likely very much a permanent impact on our students. Uh, there's a number of different things here that we need to unpack about this, and, and you've touched on a few of them there, Alex, and I, I, I'm, I'm glad you had the time to talk about this because uh, invariably there are going to be comparisons made about potential uh, work stoppages and what happened back in the 1990s when there was some confrontation between that government and teachers and, and boards of education, and there were uh, actually I think it was one strike and one lockout, if I recall, back in those days. And I don't want to go down that road, and I know you certainly don't, and I don't think any parents do, and I don't think any teachers really want to go down that road. But the characterization that I'm seeing by some people in the media here is that, well, here's these greedy teachers again. And I don't want to, you know, start, you know, putting air behind in, under that sort of thing. Uh, because since I've talked to Harvey Bishop, I've, I've talked to other uh, people that are in, well, the elementary school teachers, and of course you have to deal with, with both of those uh, unions, this doesn't seem so much to be about salaries and benefits. This may, seems to be really about the restructuring of the education system that the government seems to be undertaking. So our understanding, because we're, we are not directly at the table as local trustees, so our understanding is that there's, there are many issues on the table. But as this board of trustees, we're very concerned about increased class sizes. We certainly appreciated the, the direction that uh, the minister took uh, with regards to 
reducing um, class size increases from 28 down to 23. But that's still a huge, or sorry, down to 25. But that's still a huge step. And this past year alone, to provide you with an example, we increased our class size averages by 1%. And that meant that we had to uh, cut back on many of our course offerings. It meant to cut back of 173 courses and impacted just over 1,450 students. So it, it has a tremendous impact. And we're already hearing across the system what those on-the-ground ramifications mean. They've meant weightless. Um, so, and those are, those are not just for specialty programs. Those are for some of our core courses. Um, we've had students t- uh, talk to us about how they are having to make the decision between um, a delayed graduation, so taking a delayed graduation due to a waitlist, or taking a course that really isn't pertinent to their future career path. And that's for some of our, our, our students who are doing well in school. For other students who are not doing so well in school, this may mean that they are having to commute further to access the program that they need. And we are also very concerned about, especially our most vulnerable students, becoming further disengaged with school. So there is real impacts here, and that is why you hear trustees in Hamilton speaking so strongly against increased class sizes. I, I appreciate that for many parents, they may think, or or for many folks across the city, this is one day, these are our secondary students, um, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, this one single day will not have as big of an impact, but this is about much more than one day, because what we know uh, from the past is that when there is changes and cuts to education, those cuts are rarely ever reversed. So the, the pathway that is being set for our students in, this, um, in, in these negotiations will be the path, likely be the pathway that is set for years to come. And then we are very concerned about what that impact will be to our students and to our future generations. Well, you mentioned one day, and as of about an hour and a half ago, that's, I guess, what you were planning for, and we all, I think, understood to be the case. But uh, our, uh, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, Travis Danraj, just tweeted me a couple of seconds ago, and he's got his hands on a document right now that says that the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation have already targeted two more days in December. Now, they have, he doesn't, one I think is dece- going to be December 9th, but he wasn't sure about the other one. So, in other words, if contract negotiations don't so show some progress, this could be an ongoing problem, and this could be dragging on for a long, long time. And that, that only exacerbates the concerns, I think, that you've just stated. And that's where our expectation is that the the leaders in this province, uh, the adults, they do need to get back to the negotiating table and they need to hammer out a deal so that our students can get back to their desks and do their job of of learning and uh, building their future career path. You mentioned a couple of, of, of circumstances here, Alex, and maybe we need to spend a little bit more time on that. Because, uh, again, for, for people that maybe don't have students, in for, well, in this case, we'll talk about the secondary school circumstance, uh, about some of the things that are happening because of some of the announcements that the government has already tried to enact uh, in the school year. You mentioned about some courses may not be available. 
uh, and you said there could be some transportation problems. So are you describing here a scenario where there could be a student who's going to, say, a West End high school here in Hamilton? Uh, the course that he needs or she needs to take is not available. Uh, so they either have to wait for it, or as you mentioned, do they actually have to maybe find transportation to another school in another part of the city to take that one course? Well, I think it's important to note, Bill, that we already have tiered courses. So we have courses, core courses that are provided at all of our schools for all uh, five pathways in education. Uh, we then have second-tiered courses that are provided within each um, uh, cluster. So our, our board is divided into three uh, clusters across the city. And then we have some programs that are only offered at one school. An example would be aviation at Ancaster High. Yeah. Um, so with that, it's, it's important to note that that is already taking place. The difference is, is that there, we're already experiencing wait lists this past year, especially as students, uh, as courses were reduced. And with that, students are having to make these very difficult choices about whether they delay graduation or take a course that perhaps um, doesn't meet their, uh, their career path. Um, for other students, that is meaning that they are having to travel further. Um, and for some of the online courses, um, because there, there's been a lot of talk around, well, they can take courses online. It's important to note that there's not a a bottomless pool of online um, uh, seats or online um, positions for students to enroll, and that those courses also become um, become filled. So I've heard this past year about French immersion courses in our secondary uh, schools where they are online, and students, um, those courses have become filled, and the, the students are actually being redirected to courses being offered by other school boards. Um, it is it is concerning when students are having to make a decision of either waiting and delaying graduation or taking a course that really isn't prudent to their career path. So, again, just to follow along on that scenario so people get a clearer understanding of this, uh, if, if I'm, all our kids are, are past uh, in post-secondary school, they're in university or they're out working right now, so I, we don't have anybody in, in high school these days, from our family anyway. But if I, I had a son or a daughter that wanted to go into engineering, for instance, or, or any other discipline like that, people need to understand there's a prerequisite number of courses and kinds of courses that that student has to take to qualify uh, to go to either college or university for, for that sort of a training. What happens if, if those classes are full? What, what does that student do? They, they, they can't move forward until they get that credit. So I actually want to take a, an opportunity to highlight that here in Hamilton, our, our top concern right now is our ability to offer college-level science and math. Those are core courses that uh, our, our students need in order to pursue interest into our colleges uh, here in Ontario and across Canada. And with that, we are struggling with the, the reduction in courses to be able to offer those core courses in science and math for college level at all of our high schools. Um, so when we are not able to offer those courses, students are either waitlisted, they may be directed to take courses online, and not everyone is able to successfully complete independent studies online. Uh, most students benefit from having an uh, a person in the classroom guiding them. And uh, for some students, it may be that they have to wait an additional semester or year in order to obtain the class um, that they need in order to pursue the career path that they want to take. 
So in other words, they're going to be held back, not because of any, any, any problem with their academic achievements, simply because there's no room for them. Exactly. Well, and again, that's that's only one of a number of different scenarios that we could discuss here. And, and we've talked about the resources that are available. And I know that Mr. Lecce, the education minister, has talked a, a great deal about online courses. And uh, and again, that's not for everybody. I mean, uh, and again, to use a Hamilton example, and I know you're very familiar with this, Alex, from your time on the board. Uh, there was a time when Westmount High School offered a very a special kind of programming for students that, that were, were very good and very adept. At, at, at individual in individual learning and, and doing that. And, but th- it's not for everybody. I know some people that actually sent their kids to that, and they actually had to take them out because it just wasn't working out. So uh, you can't have a one-size-fits-all education system, really, can you? No, you can't. And that's where we, we do need to have um, diversity in courses. Um, but I, I think what is so important is that we're, we're not just talking about specialized courses here. And, and those specialized courses are important as well. Uh, especially for our special education uh, courses, um, but we're 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 also talking about our core courses, things like our our sciences and math that our students need, and it becomes very concerning when our board is not in the, um, is is not able to provide college level uh, science and math in all of our high schools. Um, it may mean a complete revamp in the future if we continue to go down this route of increasing class sizes and reducing courses. Um, and at the heart of it, we know is, as parents, as community members, as, as people who've gone through the education system ourselves, that our students do well when they have a caring adult with them in the classroom. And um, that's not to state that some students won't excel um, on online courses or in other formats, but we know that it's so important, especially during the growing years, to have those relationships one-to-one with caring adults. Well, here's hoping that there is going to be some resolution. I know that we got to the 11th hour with the support workers a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, months ago, I guess, really. Uh, and they, they did hammer out a deal that was eventually ratified by, by those folks. And uh, here's hoping that they can do the same thing. But there is a gathering storm here, Alex. I mean, we've talked about your circumstance here with the Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, the Elementary School Teachers Federation is in a similar position, although a few days behind that. And uh, and the Catholic boards, uh, and, and the French boards for that matter, uh, also are in this situation of strike votes and, and perhaps job action too. So uh, th- this is this is reaching a, a very, very difficult portion here. I mean, some would suggest a crisis situation with the government, and we're just hoping for everybody's sake that they can find some resolution to it. Well, and, that, and that's just it. It was not a crisis before, so I, I'm not sure why a uh, crisis is being created. And um, I think that we... W- I completely understand um, the fiscal situation that the province is in. So I I do want to state that. But look elsewhere. (laughs) And when it comes to our students, really, we have been running very strict budgets uh, locally at school boards across the province. Um, Here in Hamilton, uh, this past spring, when we had an increase to our class sizes, we worked extremely hard to to move money around, to prioritize their needs, and to ensure that the focus remained on students so that we could continue to offer as many course offerings as possible. Um, we, are, we are very concerned, and that's where we are encouraging parents um, and community members 
go online, do your own reading, make your own opinion, and then speak out. It's, it's so important at this point that um, uh, for individuals to become informed themselves and to express their opinion. Alex, we'll stay in touch, uh, hopefully with some good news early next week. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you. Alex Johnstone, of course, from the Hamilton Board of Education. And and by way of breaking news, I'll repeat just what I, sent, I mentioned to Alex a couple of seconds ago. We've learned from uh, Travis Downraj, who is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, for Global News, of course, that uh, he has uh, obtained a document that suggests that the Secondary School Teachers Federation have targeted at least one more day where there will be a full work stoppage. December 9th is what they're talking about, and there could be more uh, before the Christmas break comes up. We'll keep you posted on that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, troubling report about uh, gunplay here in the Hamilton area. Shootings in our city have actually had an eight-year high. Uh, it's a rather disturbing pattern, to say the least. Joining us to talk about this is the Deputy Chief of Police, Frank Bergen, from Hamilton Police Services. Uh, Frank, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, good morning. Thank you very much, Bill. And just to follow up on your last statement there, Certainly during this Christmas season, it'd be great if one of the gifts we could receive is no more shootings and no more gun violence in our city. Absolutely. I mean, one, as, as you've talked about in the past, Frank, one is one too many, but uh, the numbers here are rather troubling, and there's, there's a, a trend happening here. You've done some analysis on this. What do you see? Well, that's right, and the, and the trend, is, uh, as we've seen it, has certainly um, been, uh, unfortunately, that trend upwards. Uh, in 2017, we hit 41 uh, and that had almost uh, doubled from 2016. Uh, 2018, we, we saw a reduction, Bill, and that was down to 25 shootings. Uh, this year, to date, we're at 42. So this is a trend, again, that's coming up. Uh, Bill, I want to be clear, this is you not unique to Hamilton. Uh, we are talking to our GTA partners in policing, and in fact, we're seeing a, a proliferation of, of gun violence, and we're seeing a um, cross-border, if you will, or jurisdiction uh, challenging that it doesn't just stay within the geographical footprint of one city. And so that transient nature, our geographical location within the Golden Horseshoe is problematic. We are finding that in our shootings, in our analysis to your point, uh, is there are connections to the York region, to the Peel region, and into Niagara. Well, and we've seen this with some of the reporting and some of the, the information that you have given us uh, over the last number of years when you've talked about, for instance, organized crime and some of the shootings, and some of these are organized crime shootings, they're alleged to be organized crime shootings, uh, that they do cross jurisdictional borders, don't they, between York Region, between the GTA, and just about any place else. So uh, there's, there's something going on, and it's not just here in the Hamilton area. That's right, Bill, and I, I just want to underscore a few things, though. We, we can't just sit back and, and just say that it is organized crime. The reality is there is activity within what would be very, I guess, loose gang activity, which is generally uh, populated by youth who are entering into the criminal realm. Uh, they're into home invasions, into stolen autos, uh, into, into store robberies, etc. Uh, we're unfortunately still seeing, and we're working closely with our school boards, and, and managing, uh, it's not uncommon that we're still seeing, uh, you know, grade 11 and 12 uh, students coming in with uh, BB guns, etc. And it's that whole culture, if you will. Uh, our crime and in our shootings to date, the 42, I think it's of note to say that we've had seven homicides related to that. Uh, in total, there have been 12 homicides in our area. Um, but of the 42 shootings, uh, 23 of them have actually been at, you know, at a car, at, at a building, or, or maybe to prove a point or to establish a territory, and there has been no victim attached to that, so uh, over half of those. Uh, 
One of the stories that we often hear, though, Frank, uh, as these incidents are reported, is uh, and it's it's, it's uh, well, this is what they call a targeted attack. Uh, in other words, it's uh, it's to, to maybe use the old phrase, it's bad guys going after bad guys. Maybe in some of these situations, or as you say, drug deals and things of this nature. Uh, that, that's really kind of cold comfort because I mean the public is still at risk in these circumstances. Absolutely, cold comfort, because the reality, when I spoke of these 23 out of the 42, these are errant rounds. These are people that are, yeah, they may be shooting a, a shotgun into a back of a building or whatever, but we do not need any person to be held in a crossfire. Uh, we do not need that. The other part of that is is the, the reality is... Um, in, in the most recent, well, not the most recent, but maybe two shootings ago, unfortunately, uh, we watched uh, we watched a clear video that indicated that a, a, a gaggle of people are standing on a sidewalk in the early hours in the morning. They witnessed firsthand a shooting. It would not be uncommon that they may even be wearing uh, evidence of that shooting, which is from, uh, you know, the actual crime itself. And, and, and some you know, dart off and run away from the area, and, and others just remain and don't even assist the victim and walk over the victim back into the establishment. That is completely unacceptable. Unacceptable that these people also within this culture are, are not cooperating with the investigations and, and do not give any evidence to us or any forward uh, clues. Uh, the reminder to the public at large, again, crime stoppers, or if you see something, say something. This is a whole of service, um, a whole of community response that's required to make sure that there's a clear message that not one shooting is acceptable in our community. Well, and we've seen this more and more. And the one that always jumps out to me is uh, this is, I guess it was a couple of years ago now, Frank, and it was it was a Sunday morning, I think in the springtime, beautiful sunny day uh, at Maine and Victoria, right downtown. And there was gunplay among some people. I mean, everybody heard it. Uh, but I can still remember talking to one of the investigating officers, and he says apparently everybody was in the bathroom because nobody saw a damn thing. Uh, exactly. Without, you know, in the absence of information, that's problematic. Now, n- n- apparently nobody was injured in that, but I mean, you know, a Sunday morning, people going to church, people going to the store, something could have happened in circumstances like that. Yeah, it's not. It's not a good. Uh not a good uh, mark to society when in fact that you're right people all of a sudden have amnesia the, the one positive is is the reality is that we are getting um, we are getting guns from um, from traffic stops we're getting officers who are doing amazing the men and women of this service day in and day out uh, using their intuition using their investigative um, sense and, and being able to look at just the common interaction. Uh, last night we pulled a 9mm Ruger off the street uh, two and a half weeks ago. Two officers on patrol within uh, Maine and uh, Ontario region uh, observed something and, and noticed the driver's behavior, uh, follow-up, further investigation, uh, small bits of drugs, opiates, fentanyl uh, involved, but more importantly in the backpack of that uh, car was a loaded 357. So uh, if it worked for the uh, intuition and for the awareness of our officers, these type of things would continue to flow through our city. I, I mean, there was a time when we, you know, and it was rare, uh, not, not, not too many years ago, when you'd hear, uh, you know, about gunplay going on. And there's, of course, there's a, a well-trained and an, and an excellent tactical squad with Hamilton Police Services. But any officer that goes on duty at any time in any part of the city right now, Frank, uh, may be exposed to this sort of thing. It seems to be that, that rampant right now that you just don't know. Exactly, and our officers are highly trained, as you know. 
the interactions and the and the challenges they have with regards to the growing opioid crisis, the, um, people with uh, emotionally disturbed patterns, etc., are problematic. But characteristics of an armed person and awareness and proper use of force, um, um, tact, calm, calm etc., is so key for the safety of everybody because our officers have to, to your point, be engaged. One hundred percent. How do you, how, as a as a police service, though, when you see these sorts of numbers and and this this very troubling trend, uh, obviously you, you've got to incorporate that into your work plan for the next year, two, three years, whatever it's going to be. I know there was a gangs and gun squad here for a longest time, and 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 I don't know whether or not that had an impact or not with with some of these numbers. But are, are you at the point now where you might have to start deploying specialized uh, forces or specialized programs to try to deal with this? We already have specialized units, uh, to your point, Bill, uh, within our organization, but you're right. Whether it's a stay safe uh, um, task force or things of that nature, the reality in policing, though, is to be able to sustain your attention to this. So what we've had to do is to make sure that there's a whole of service awareness. Uh, we appeal at every opportunity to the community. This is not just a community police issue. This is a community safety issue. And we require all people, and they do it every day, people within client services, people within our supports, within the courts, uh, within the detention center, are actively assisting us in larger conversations to speak about emerging gangs and gang activities. So this is for everybody to listen to carefully. If you see something, say something, assist the police, uh, make uh, or avail yourself of crime stoppers if you're not comfortable coming forward. But uh, you're right, this is uh, um, us looking at every day, managing what is the future and how we will work with our community partners, but more importantly in policing, uh, we are at the table with the GTA policing services and we're making sure that we have the ability to not only address gun violence, guns and gangs, but we also deal with street crime and street crime activity. The other element to this, too, obviously, there is a political side to this, and I know that the, that the, the police t- tend not to want to get involved in that, but, I mean, you do have to have a voice because you're, you're the guys that get stuck in the middle of this and have to deal with this. And I know the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police have taken a stand about things like gun violence and and, and looking for some government help here when it comes to this. And, and and I don't want to drag you into the debate about whether or not guns should be banned or gun control or anything like that, because even our federal politicians don't seem to want to jump into that now. Uh, because of the pushback that they're going to get from either side on a situation like this. But clearly, Frank, at some point, there has to be a discussion about where these are coming from and how you try to to do something to try to cut off the supply. We work with our um, policing partners uh, all the time with respect to the actual um, flow of guns in and out of regions. We do. Uh, Bill, the uh, conversation, though, whether it's at a federal, provincial, or municipal level, uh, it has to be, again, a a complete uh, approach, uh, a complete um, thought, uh, it can't be something that within jurisdictions uh, someone speaks to a uh, bylaw with regards to banning a gun because, again, I want to go back to my initial point, uh, to stem the flow of transient movement of criminality is key. So even within the border of Hamilton, if we said this was 100% gun-free, zero tolerance, because uh, we all believe in zero tolerance, but again, it doesn't stop the flow from somebody moving through in a transient nature. So I, I won't discount the value of, of talking about this. The reality is the person who has the lawful authority to possess a handgun or a long arm are following the rules. The people who are into um, hunting and targeting, etc., are following the rules. They have proper lock mechanisms and safes and vaults, etc., and they do everything they possibly can to maintain licensing standards. This is not 
the norm, and this is not what we see from our um, criminal youth gangs and gang activities, guns and gangs, uh, criminals. Uh, they do not follow the rules, and, and therefore their criminality will usurp uh, the actual responsible thing that anybody attempts to do. On that point, though, Frank, and I know you've done some analysis on some of these numbers, is, is domestic violence a factor here? Because there are some people that, quote-unquote, legitimately own guns, and, and sadly, uh, as domestic violence flares, sometimes that, that can prevent an, or propose an opportunity for them. I, I'm getting the sense that the overwhelming number of these are, are more involved in, in, in street crimes than they are in that sort of thing. What, what, what do the numbers tell you? Yeah, Bill, I think you're actually bang on, and I would uh, applaud you for your analysis. Uh, no, we, I would not diminish this or speak to this as being something that is problematic within residential or domestic relationships. Uh, certainly, if you are looking at violence, uh, there is more of a propensity to a knife or other type of a, 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 an approach if you are looking at person-on-person person who have a connection. These are unconnected or sporadic activities that either speak at a high level of organized crime or um, uh, just, again, sort of ad hoc groups of youth sort of traveling in different areas. There is no one part of our community that's more at risk than others. That's to be fair. Uh, but there's many, many layer, layers of this. It does center around our drug culture. It does center around what has been the introduction of fentanyl. I can tell you as a police officer, I saw that with the introduction of cocaine and the shift to crack cocaine and how that, in fact, changed the landscape and introduced the violence. What we're seeing, again, is a resurgence of violence because fentanyl has been able to take crack cocaine and, again, multiply it by many layers. So it's a drug culture thing. It's not a domestic violence issue. Frank, maybe you could just spend a couple of seconds here addressing uh, the, the, the coordination that goes on. You mentioned how you're in constant contact with other police services and around the GTA in situations like this. But, but given the flow, and an awful lot of this is flow right over the border, uh, maybe you might want to comment about the work that you do with the RCMP and the Canada Border Security about trying to stem that flow. Again, I'll just speak in a larger, um, a larger platform on that bill because, again, uh, you already talked about the OACP. You have talked about, and we've certainly um, welcomed what has been federal monies introduced to guns and gangs and violence, uh, currently um, at a, four, a $5 million level. Uh, we are seeking access to those funds to assist us, certainly in Hamilton, but it does take that cooperation within the policing community, and it does speak to a federal level at the RCMP. But what we benefit from is a, uh, a constant contact with our local um, policing partners. Uh, and when we speak of our value with regards to Waterloo, um, London, Brantford, uh, Niagara, uh, it's key that we're talking at all times, and there is constantly a link whether it's on a low scale of a break and enter, whether it's a, a carjacking, or, or what we're finding is the introduction of human trafficking and other things that actually bring in the firearm, uh, there has been an outstanding cooperation within the policing community. And I'm using this opportunity, Bill, again, to remind the community that we need the public's assistance. This is not just a policing enforcement uh, um, hand or arm into this. This is a whole of service, a whole of community response to stem the violence of the increased firearm usage, but more importantly, the safety of our community at large. And Frank, every now and then we're going to see one of these uh, media conferences, uh, again, because of these coordinated efforts. And, and you'll see the, the photo op there, and it's this big, huge cache of arms, oftentimes automatic weapons and handguns and things of this nature. 
Uh, and and that's got to be gratifying to be able to do something like that. I know sometimes it might look like a drop in the bucket, but it is getting those guns off the streets. But more often than not, I'm, I'm told from some of the officers that have been involved in some of those investigations that a lot of the, the catalyst for, for those activities is really from tips from the public about something. They always are. They always are tips from the public. We always follow the evidence. We may we may be lucky, as I've said, in a vehicle stop to, to find a loaded uh, weapon that may assist us. But again, in many cases, much like what we've talked about on the streets, when nobody comes forward, uh, yeah, we can use video evidence. We can maybe pick up partial license plates and car descriptions, but we do need the public's assistance. And quite often it is that that makes the difference between actually uh, a resolution that in fact can stem the flow of violence. As you head into budget time, and that's always a, a fun time for police services and for city councillors, and that, that's coming up sooner than later, uh, do you employ these stats in, in deciding exactly where your resources are going to be deployed in the, in the coming year? That's right, and I, I would say that our board is, is quite aware of what is um, happening within our region and certainly within Canada. The Crime Severity Index is often used uh, when uh, articulating position on what is trends within communities. Uh, our, in fact, uh, uh, relationship with the board has been outstanding in that. Uh, we spoke about traffic initiatives such as the Red Hill Valley Parkway and looking at different resources. This cannot go unnoticed. These are conversations we do have with our board. And you're right, during budget conversations, staffing and making sure that we have the available resources uh, to continue to provide community safety uh, is key. Uh Good luck with this uh, going forward, and, and hopefully that we're going to have some reduction in these as we look forward. And I know that you're tracking this on a pretty consistent basis. Uh, Deputy Chief Frank Berger, as always, Frank, thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill, and have a great afternoon. And again, let's hope that we can have a couple, <laughs> couple days, if weeks, if not a month of, of some silence so we don't have to do this again. But again, a final reminder is that people can contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or again, just speak to a police officer. Let us know what you know, and that'll make everybody safer. And that's Thank totally you. anonymous. They don't use call display or anything else, too. So that's I'll correct. That. It's Crime Stoppers and its outstanding partner agency. Thanks again, Frank. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Deputy Chief Frank Bergen. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've got some political problems. We've been talking over the last couple of days about, you know, the Conservatives and some of the infighting going on since the election vis-a-vis uh, -vis Andrew Scheer's leadership. And a number, again, almost on a daily basis, a number of uh, Conservative leaders uh, from both sides of the political spectrum within that Conservative Party are now saying that uh, it's time for Andrew Scheer to step down. So you've got some dissension within the ranks. The other problem, though, that I know an awful lot of people would like to see addressed here is what seems to be some rather interesting and, and very troubling rifts within Canada itself. And that crosses party lines. Uh, we already know about the Wexit the situation, of course. I was just in Alberta last week, obviously, for Grey Cup festivities. And uh, had some interesting discussions with some of the locals there in Calgary about wanting to break away from Canada. Uh, this is something that Jason Kenney is obviously floating, the, the, the premier out there these days. Uh, not so sure if it's such a smart strategy. Uh, there's some concerns, again, about Quebec, the fact that the Bloc, of course, had a very successful election. Uh, there are some problems here and some divisions in this country that seem to be getting worse, not better. And I know that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, who's re-elected, by the way, is an independent out in British Columbia, has commented on this. So has the Prime Minister, and so have many other people about this. But what are we going to do about this? I mean, national unity is not something you thought was going to be a major issue, but it's becoming one once again. Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University, uh, joins us to talk about this. Henry, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. 
Always, ha- always happy to be with you, Bill. Why is this flaring up again? I don't know that it if ever went away, but you know there was some concern. You remember a number of years ago, of course, the uh, you know about Quebec separation. They actually had a referenda about that. Uh, Alberta's always had some concerns about federalism and, and and the way that Ottawa has treated them, but it seems to be ramping up in these days. Yeah, it, it flares up. It's always going to be there. I think with a country like Canada, where we have a great deal of diversity regionally from coast to coast, we're a very diverse country, uh, very different views of people in various provinces. The economies of the, of the different provinces vary a great deal in terms of the type of uh, wealth they generate in, from their economies, as well as you know, rich rich provinces versus poor provinces, and those go and that goes up and down. And so, it's something I think it's just something we'll just we're just going to live with and uh, have to live with here. And uh, you know, it happened. And and we just had this morning a very uh, f- interesting flare up where the uh, Manitoba government's advertising in Quebec saying, "Well, for you people who don't like Bill 21, you think you're going to be uh, uh, discriminated against." Uh, and you're you're, bi- you're fluently bilingual. Come to Manitoba because we're looking for fluently bilingual uh, civil servants in Manitoba. <laughs> and now the, and the Quebec government says, "How dare you try to poach these people?" <laughs> you know, and, and I I think sort of laugh and sort of funny. I mean, here you are making life difficult for these people. You know, who are going to be negatively affected by your law. And when somebody comes to try to get a hold of them and say, "Go to another province," and these are uh, you know well educated. Uh, you know, professional people who Quebec really shouldn't doesn't really want to lose, but uh, you know it's uh, so they so they're at, at uh, you know going after Manitoba. So we're going to have these sort of things, and I think also what is a bit funny here is that traditionally um, Ontario has been the peacemaker of all the provinces, and that sort of ended a number of years ago where uh, when Mike Harris was premier and so you know everybody said oh now the you know the whole country's in trouble cuz Ontario is no longer the peacemaker trying to pull everybody together the way John Robarts used to do it and other other premiers and then suddenly we have Doug Ford who who's making very nice with premier Trudeau so i mean it's a funny country but i, I i'm optimistic these things happen it's like a, a family feud that goes up and down and i i don't i don't think it'll ever mean the family will break up but it is just the it's just sort of a a family feud writ large, and it's something we all have to put up with. Yeah, and there's, let's face it, there's a lot of bombast and rhetoric that's involved in yes. some of this, too. And, and that's not to diminish the, the, what I think are some very legitimate concerns. Uh, we were watching the Vanier Cup on Saturday afternoon right. uh, at, a, at a pub in uh, Calgary, and I got talking with one of the locals there about the, you know, this, this Wexit thing. And I said, are, are you not watching what's going on in the U.K. these days with their idea to, to leave the European Union? It's not easy, and it's pretty complicated, no. and it gets pretty messy. Uh, you know, you really want to go down that road. And, and he said, well, that means you don't care. And I said, no, that doesn't mean we don't care at all. Certainly we do. But I, I think what everybody's looking for here is a unifier. And, and yeah. I'm not so sure that they, there is a savior like that. I mean, it's going to take everybody to work together, not one person to say, okay, I'll fix this now. Uh, that's right. And I mean, certainly in the day uh, when uh, Justin Trudeau's father was prime minister, I mean, the people out west uh, were angry at him. The the strong nationalists in Quebec were angry at him, and somehow he kept the whole country together. And then when, when Brian Mulroney came in after him and said, well, he was going to sort of fix the problem permanently by reopening the Constitution, well, that turned into a mess. That was that did you know that's not some, something that didn't work and it, it's something we have to sort of muddle through and sort of you know paper you know try to try to deal with it as best we can there's there's really i think no 
ultimate solution to all these things. They're always going to be there, and and essentially everybody has to talk and listen. And I must say I'm, I am encouraged by the prime minister or all the talks that he's having with various people, the premiers and opposition party leaders and mayors of major cities. And uh, so he's, he's trying to be the conciliator now. And, and, and as I said, it looks like Donald, it looks like, um, uh, you know, that premier Ford in Ontario is going to try to help him out on that. And I, I, that, so there's two rays of hope right there. For me, and I, I think we'll, I think we'll get through this, but I think we're going to have some bumps going up. Uh, and I, I, I share your optimism on this, Henry, but I'm also a little skeptical. I mean, when some people like Doug Ford and some of the others say, you know, we need to unify, uh, yeah. I, sometimes what they mean is, as long as everybody does things the way I think they should be done, we should all be happy. Uh, it's going to be some give and take here. Everybody's going to have to do that. Yeah, I think so. But I think Ford is. I mean, quite frankly, I do. You know, I do think Ford is learning. I mean, he, he came into the job and he thought this was the premier's going to be easy job. I just tell everybody what to do. I'm big and strong and Ontario, and I'm in charge and I got a minority, majority government. And, and I think he's really learned, I mean, because when his public opinion dropped in half, I think he, he was shocked about what happened. And I think there's some learning that went on over the summer. And I think he realizes, yeah, he's getting advice from people now. No, maybe we ought to go back to the traditional role of Ontario being a peacemaker. And and we're not going to, you know, be able to, you know, get our, you know, bully our way through the Confederation and bully the federal government. We're going to have to do it maybe the way John Robarts and Bill Davis did it, that that probably is the better way of, of behaving. And if, if he, and, and if I'm right, and if he's picking up his cues from those conservative, progressive conservative premiers, then, then, then I think I'm optimistic. And, uh, and I think there's some realism there. Um, and I think things will eventually settle down, you know, out west. Certainly, I mean, I can't. I think Kenny, Jason Kenny's going to run into trouble about about government services out in 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 um, Alberta. I think people are going to be worried about their health care and the other services. Uh, and I, I think he's going to he's going to have fights on the home front that are going to, you know, that he's going to have to turn his attention to. And uh, and I so I I, I think there's going to be a, you know, it's going to be a, a muddle and. You know, a lot of bickering back and forth, but I, I, I think over, over the, you know, over the long term and even the intermediate term, I think these things will, once again, we'll learn to deal with them and go, just go on and have a pretty good country. Hope so. <laughs> Hope so. I share that too, Henry. Thanks as always. Really appreciate the time today. Okay, very good, Bill. Take care. Have a good weekend, Henry Jason. Your course at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.